Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast where we talk with authors about the most recent monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the podcast, and today I talk with Dori Noyes about Humble Theory, a book she recently published with Indiana University Press. Dori is professor of English and Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University and also president of the American Folklore Society. In Humble Theory, Noyes takes aim at the central questions and theories of our discipline, and proposes that the questions proper to our field are not why questions, but how questions about the life of forms in society. How do forms move across time and space and remain recognizable? How do the people who recurrently interact in a given situation generate forms in common, and how do those forms work back again upon their makers? How is form marked by voice, such that we can recognize it as folk, or as Cajun, or as mine, or as other? Meanwhile, in our current moment of fake news, Me Too, and Black Lives Matter, these questions are quite valuable, even as the Academy finds precious little space for them. Ultimately, it seems that both the strength and the weaknesses of folklore might simultaneously lie in the fact that the field and its theories are humble, low, and close to the ground. Let's listen to the interview. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Folklore, a podcast in which we talk with authors of the latest monographs in the field of folklore studies. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm delighted to be joined by Professor Dorothy Noyes to discuss her 2016 volume, Humble Theory, Folklore's Grasp on Social Life. Professor Noyes is Professor of English and Comparative Studies at The Ohio State University and also now President of the American Folklore Society. She is a giant in our field, and I'm delighted that she's made time for us today. Dory, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Dr. Thurston. Um, so I guess to begin, I was wondering if you'd tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, what is your folklore origin story? Uh, mine, I guess, is different from a lot of people who come in with the field, well, who come in from the field and in a sense go back home to do their work. I am a library rat from Evanston, Illinois, and I grew up, um, I think, extremely shy and withdrawn. And um, when I was in college, I did really medieval studies. Uh, I learned some languages and I read a lot of ancient texts and I really didn't engage with anything later than Jane Austen. And this made it a bit difficult for me to engage with my own peer group and to live in the world around me. So I discovered I happened to be an undergraduate at Indiana, which of course has uh, the iconic folklore program in the U.S. Um, I was not a a folklore major. I actually went there because I wanted to be an opera singer, but timidity didn't work well in that department either. So I Uh, came really by accident in my last semester there uh, upon some of the grad students in folklore because I was taking a class in medieval Celtic literature. And from the things that they had to offer to that class, 
um, I started to realize that there were well, that I was selling the contemporary world a bit short, uh, but also that the kind of methods and obsessions that I had picked up in the course of my education might be useful in this realm. So when I finished my undergrad degree, I went to work in the bike business because my only semi-marketable skill was speaking Italian. And I had a job for a year and a half. Um, I met my husband there, so it wasn't lost time. But I spent a year and a half uh, receiving the phone calls from angry Italians. um, And I did a lot of explaining to them that the American economy was in crisis and they couldn't get paid yet. So that made me feel that perhaps I should go back to grad school. And I started reading folklore books at the Evanston Public Library. And uh, then that's, that is how I got recruited. It was um, getting out of the bike business. Oh, wow. That's, that's quite the beginning, I think. Um, So, okay. And so uh, in between, in between the, the current book that we're going to be discussing today and your leaving the bike business, I guess you, you spent a lot of time in, in Catalonia and wrote your first book, a fire in the plaza, yeah. Uh, yeah, I d- ended up doing field work in Catalonia, also as an uh, well, also as a kind of accident. I learned Catalan by mistake when I was at Indiana uh, because I was trying to study Provençal. Because, as I said, I was going to be a medievalist, but there wasn't a class, and there was one in Catalan. And I think I un- I maybe learned early that if you want to get a reputation for knowledge, um, you can do this more easily by knowing things that everybody in the world, everybody else does not know. Uh, I suppose I've always been a, bit, been a bit of an intellectual claustrophobe. And so by learning something obscure, I suddenly had, um, I guess, a, uh, a skill that impressed people enough to admit me into grad school. Uh, Anyway, so I was looking around really for Catalan topics just when I was writing seminar papers in grad school at Penn and came upon the Patum um, in looking for a paper to write about folk trauma. And so as a result of that, I ended up going off to Catalonia for fieldwork Uh, in a way that was really transformative, living in a small city in the foothills of the Pyrenees um, in what you might call Catalonia's Appalachia, um, the deindustrializing part of a prosperous industrial region where people really had a sense that um, their world, you know, the circumstances of their very intense local festival life were coming to an end, um, but that the skills they'd learned along the way were going to be really valuable for the future. So the Patum was a, um, is uh, a highly vital um, festival um Um, a festival that grows out of a religious occasion, Corpus Christi, which is the festival of the body of Christ in the Catholic Church. And as a kind of vernacular response to the very hierarchical social body represented in the Corpus Christi procession, the church procession, um, these, these kind of folk performances inserted themselves and, um, 
inserted themselves and adopted a very ambiguous but very, very powerful symbolic language of these dancing figures, giants and dwarves, uh, mules with firecrackers in their mouths, eagles with crowns on their head, um, flaming devils, most of all. Uh, And these figures clearly referenced differences in the local community, differences of class, uh, differences of gender, differences of, um, of origin, um, immigrant and, 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 and indigenous. Um, you know, they referenced a whole lot of the sources of conflict that were endemic in that community and in Spain at large and in Europe at large. And because this was all nonverbal, um, it could lend itself to multiple interpretations that would both allow it to survive over time. Nobody ever really outlawed this thing because you could always argue that it represented the triumph of Catholicism or it represented the triumph of the revolution or it represented the triumph of General Franco or sort of whatever they needed to say at the moment. Um, But that vagueness also meant that everybody within a very claustrophobic local community, which, you know, any tightly integrated community is also a place of conflict, um, that vagueness also gave everybody uh, an angle of participation, a different sort of stance that they could assume. So that was, I think, a great instructive experience for me, not only uh, in the experience of being thrown in, because as I say, I was a library rat and here I was um, setting my head on fire essentially and having all sorts of exotic things poured down my throat and dancing and doing a whole lot of things that I do not do and really undergoing uh, what it means to live in the body in a constrained space among other people. So that's both the community life and in a very concentrated, ludic, wonderful way what the festival is about. Um, You know, so I learned what it was to live in the middle of a place that takes conflict for granted instead of assuming that it can reconcile and sort out and come to a unified understanding, which as an American, of course, uh, I had had taken as 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 normative, really. Um, So it was a great political education. It was a great introduction to a kind of theorizing that does not um, work through abstraction, you know, doesn't work from drawing back from experience and trying to reach general terms, but rather works through embodiment um, that kind of plays out over and over again that same central conflict, but each time plays it out a bit differently. Each time plays it out in a different moment with a different mix of players. You know, it's never really clear whether this battle between the Turks and the Christians is won by the Turks or the Christians. Everybody's still alive at the end. And in it seems maybe that during the Franco regime, when everybody was pretty much forced to be a good Catholic if they wanted to eat, uh, it seems that that was the moment at which one of the Turks in this symbolic battle started getting away at the end, Um, you know, was not slain at the end along with the others. Anyway, so this was a kind of conflict that kept eternally replaying itself. 
and where nobody ever really went away. And that uh, got me to thinking differently about um, about how society works, about how theory works, um, and about how my own life might work. And so I wonder, um, so, so uh, this sounds like quite a different sort of project from the book that 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 we're discussing today this new book humble theory which uh is not sort of an ethnography of just one uh community and one event but but sort of a very very wide-ranging sort of work and that was so I i guess i wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book now well humble theory wasn't a project at all it's uh it was written it was composed, I should say, by invitation uh, from Indiana University Press. This is really a book of collected essays, um, revised and sort of sequenced in ways that I hope are (laughs) at least a bit cumulative. But it does reflect um, the accidents of career in a way that I think all of our mature work does as scholars. Um, Your your dissertation and your first book, as you know, is something that um, where you go out, I think, to test yourself against the field, um, where you go out to have a kind of transformative encounter with the real. Um, But then if you have, you know, what for me and for many is very good fortune of ending up in the academy, um, you are sort of pulled back from that primary engagement. And especially for me, because my training was in folklore. It wasn't in um, Catalan studies. Catalan studies, um, at the time when I uh, got my degree, no more than folklore was Catalan studies, a, uh, a, a rich field of potential tenure track jobs. And I was not trained as a Hispanist. So really the larger context for teaching and doing Catalan studies, um, you know, and being in a Spanish department, I really didn't have the background that qualified me for that. So by great good fortune, I ended up in an English department and in the interdisciplinary um, folklore program, which of course you know well at Ohio State, where um, perhaps in my career here, which is now 22 years, I think I have had um, one abortive a master's student, and at present one PhD student working in Catalan studies. But the rest of my career, I have been teaching and advising students working in Turkey, students working in Appalachia, students working in Iran, students working, as you know, in China. Um, So I had to really rethink my teaching Um, in terms of what would be comparatively useful. And in a sense, you know, so I think it did come out of that first field experience in a couple of ways. First of all, in that they, in Berga, also had a very comparative consciousness because they knew they were not the center of the world. You know, I mean, I, I shouldn't say that. They created themselves as a center of the world for the moment of the festival, understanding that their reality, their external circumstances, made them provincial and made them dependent on somewhere else, made them defined by others. Not really very interested in that predicament. And as that 
in that predicament as a sort of comparative way about thinking about the places in the world that folklorists characteristically studied, the places or the social strata, um, the, the, the kind of field sites that we seek. So um, bringing with me that idea of, um, of understanding oneself comparatively, of having to build solidarities by thinking comparatively, and also that notion of um, vernacular theory, which, which gave birth in, in part um, to the sense of humble theory, all of that led into the book. But the book uh, came out of initially assignments I got from the field, and especially, you know, the most famous thing I've ever written, the thing I'm most sick of, honestly, the essay group, um, which already in 1995, I was asked to do for the Journal of American Folklore for a special issue on keywords in folklore. And there I was asked to think about uh, this concept of community, which we are all in love with, um, versus more sociological objectivist kinds of notions of social group and versus the sort of stigmatizing categories such as folk um, with which um, many of the actors we study have been touched. So that was a first important comparative project for me. And as a result of that, I ended up asking to, ended up getting asked to address our other big problems, what's tradition, um, you know, or what are aesthetics in folklore, these, these sort of global questions. And I guess when you're invited, especially when you're young and you're invited, you don't say no. But it also um, became a kind of practical problem for me and one that, that very much, you know, because me now as president of the American Folklore Society, uh, the question of what indeed are the are the core, um, if not the core concepts, the core problems that unite a field that is both small in its absolute numbers, the 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 um, number of professionals in the world who call themselves folklorists, um, and enormous in its scope. Um, all of us working out uh, everywhere in the world on every kind of phenomenon, on festival, on personal narrative, on animal story, on material culture, on vernacular architecture, on belief, uh, our empirical scope is so vast, our numbers are so small that um, it's, and, and also our local institutional affiliations. I think the fact that um, we have been able to adapt ourselves to a wide range of institutional contexts, some of us uh, in many parts of the world working at national research institutes where our brief uh, is culture defined in national terms, some of us working in, um, in programs where we are encouraged and allowed to be theorists, uh, some of us working in archives very particularly defined, uh, and many of us working attached to a whole range of disciplines, history, literature, um, 
um, you know, art history, musicology, all of these things. So with all of those, with our the ability we've developed to fit ourselves into a variety of institutional ecologies and conversations, that has also made for a great diversity of theoretical frameworks, a great diversity of vocabularies, and to pull all that together and try to define the there there um, is something I felt compelled to do first for the sake of my own career and then for the sake of my interdepartmental program at Ohio State and now, of course, for the sake of the society. So the book, um, the essays, most of the essays in the book are really exercises in pulling the pieces together uh, in ways that I hope are useful to others, but at any rate were useful to me um, as, as trying to not dissolve, um, not dissolve the particulars, but to understand the family resemblances among them, the historical circumstances from which we came, and the kinds of questions and arguments that can now keep us in conversation. Ah, great. Okay. Um, you know, that actually uh, sort of dovetails nicely with the, the question I was going to ask next is sort of getting us towards uh, the, the, the context, contents of the book itself. Um, the book's title, Humble Theory, it's also the title of one of your chapters, which is in turn a reprint of an earlier Journal of Folklore Research article. Um, so I guess I guess this is this is a pretty important term for us to unpack, sort of in understanding the larger project. Um, what do you mean by humble theory? So it has two opposites, you could say. You know, all all concepts are contrastive; they're all formed in opposition to something. And the initial contrast was with grand theory, and uh, an additional contrast is with high. Theory. So, grand theory, um, without you understand being uh, particularly accomplished in these matters, I understand grand theory as belonging to the social sciences um, and being associated, you know, especially with these sort of great 19th century synthetic synthesists, synthetic thinkers in that respect, you know, the Freuds and Marxes and kinds of the world who uh, are looking for. Um, a unifying principle, a unifying principle, a sort of deep structure, if we take it forward to Levi-Strauss, um, that accounts for the diversity of reality that we see before us. So, you know, Freud takes us back to a particular scene of creation. You know, Freud takes us back uh, to the psyche and its sort of primordial conflicts. Marx takes us back to... Um, um, you know, takes us back to the economy and to these these sorts of fundamental um, conflicts within economic structure. Um, Levi Strauss takes us really back to cognitive um, to cognitive problems, but they're all trying to find, you know, a kind of original scene, a kind of deep um, a kind of deep problematic that will get us towards diversity. And that longing for theory, of course, is also a longing for respectability in um, 
in a so in social scientific terms, it's about being able to um, to have a kind of cumulative theory that allows us to generate hypotheses and make predictions. And humble theory, the essay was um, immediately a part of a somewhat traumatic moment in um, the history of the field when one of our great 19, one of our great innovators from the sort of 1968 era of new perspectives in folklore, Alan Dundas. Uh, Alan Dundas was part of a group of um, innovators that were nominated the Young Turks, uh, the sort of revolutionaries um, by Richard Dorson, the sort of keeper of the establishment at that time. And all of them were really interested in revitalizing folklore studies um, from a more, from a greater emphasis on method and classification and the tracing of text to uh, a driving to a driving theory uh, that would make it more like social science, that frankly would make it um, sexier and more respected, but also that would associate it more with dynamism in the world. This was really a group of scholars who came in the age who came of age in the 1960s, who saw folklore being active in the world because they were looking at the way that songs were being used on the barricades of the civil rights movement of student protests. They were looking at the way that festival forms and narrative forms were being brought into um, struggles for civil rights and for decolonization and for um, and for uh, local sorts of assertion. So they were looking for theory um, as a way of turning folklore into a social science. And they did various kinds of experiments along these lines, some of which worked better than others. And I'll come back to the one that I think worked in a moment. Um, but Alan Dundas, of course, was one of these. And he uh, tried out a lot of different paradigms in his uh, first years, particularly structuralism. And then um, psycho, uh, psychoanalytic theory, and he got, I think, really hung up, and I will say, frankly, stagnated in a certain rather limited model, rather limited Freudian model, interpretive model, um, understanding folklore, the 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 texts and the and the sort of objects that we have um, as the product of um, psychic conflict and repression and, um, and, and narrativization, these, these sort of Freudian processes. Anyway, he uh, went off to Berkeley and sort of did this in, to, in a sense, his own fortress, um, had not engaged with the field for a long time, uh, had not been to a meeting of the American Folklore Society for a long time. And then he was invited back uh, to give a keynote address at the American Folklore Society annual meeting. And that was, what year was that? Um, 2000, I think it, it was either 2003 or 2004. Um, and he basically said, folklore has no grand, grand theory and we are not taken seriously because of this. And in going back to look for grand theory, he was really going all the way back to the 19th century to to um, to Fraser 
uh, to Fraser and really simply looking at you know, generalizations that you could then go out and test somewhere. And Elliot Oring, of course, is, um, I think, sustaining this sort of push towards testable generalizations at the moment. Um, but it created a kind of um, startled reaction, certainly among our students uh, in the field, um, and some pushback among people who felt that folklore had, in fact, been moving along more productive theoretical lines. And so as a result of that, Lee Herring organized a session at AFS in 2005 um, to ask, why is there no grand theory in folkloristics? And a variety of responses were given to this, um, most of which were that we are working at a theoretical level that is appropriate for us, um, that grand theory is not really what we're aspiring to do. And I think uh, the, you know, the sort of useful piece that came out of this session, um, all of these, of course, were published in the Journal of Folklore Research, but Richard Bellman's, uh, Richard Bellman's formulation of the philology of the vernacular, I think, put forward a viable version of the field um, and certainly, I think, an account of what the American field has been doing. But what I wrote, uh, really following in part along, Mar- along the example of Margaret Mills, who says, well, we do look, um, we are doing theory that comes from closer to the ground, comes from often the people we are working with, and comes in response to uh, trying to answer questions at a more localized or particularistic level. Um, so I was thinking about that in thinking what I myself would say about grand theory. And I was also thinking about myself uh, in an English department where um, there's not what I think you would call grand theory in the sense that it is trying to be theory of everything, um, but there is high theory. Um the kind of high theory that we associate um, certainly with post-structuralism that is uh, working at a level um, not accessible to the, certainly not accessible to those subaltern, um, to those subaltern actors it's often talking about. High theory is um, in a sense greatly theory about theory, um, and it's theorists talking among themselves, really, at a level that um, is greatly illuminating, and a lot of it has reached something I would call truth. But as uh, Johannes Fabian, the anthropologist Johannes Fabian loves to say, it doesn't get me through the day. It doesn't get me through the day. It's not a level at which I was trained. It's not a level at which I see myself working. And I think it's not a level that um, serves a field like ours, which really lives in multiple locations, some of which are very close to the ground. So folklore has, as I said in the Humble Theory article, you know, we have academics who are in the business of bringing um bringing vernacular insights into academic conversation 
playing a kind of mediating role that does contribute towards general theory. But we also have the archivists um, whose job it is to, um, to assemble and make accessible these kinds of insights. Uh, and then we also have the activists, uh, those people who are um, working with communities, um, helping them to imagine how, um, how these questions of um, justice and equity might be addressed, how the, um, how the projects that are implicit in folklore itself, the efforts to be heard, the efforts to command attention, the efforts at both recognition and reformulation of the world, the kinds of social theory that exist in folklore itself. You know, a number of people in our field are living in that world, are part of that world. And so high theory would not work for most of us. And grand theory is... Again, it may be true, but it doesn't get us through the day. We who deal with particulars, you know, we who deal with the surface of things and the kind of human interactions and negotiations that take place through particulars and on the surface, um, that's not the level of theory that gives us what we most need. And so I think what has worked in our field um, in the U.S. sort of variant of what we do, certainly, has been um, this kind of um, attention to attention to the particulars of of genre and of discourse. Um, this sort of attention to surface level. surface-level systematic features of text or, um, or of other kinds of social form, um, the attempt to turn that into an ethnography of communication um, and the growth of that into performance theory, the sense that if we understand how text texts or other communicative artifacts are generated in the world, how they are caught up and heard, how they are transformed and transmitted. If we look at that whole question of how stuff moves around in the world through forms, the question of how, not what is its, what are its deep roots, not what are its, you know, not what are its causes, but simply those how questions of how does this stuff get communicated? How does communication happen? How do how does form circulate? Those are useful questions. They have practical applications. Um, you know, these are questions that advertisers also ask. These are questions that political message messengers also ask. They have practical applications. They are also, I think, of great theoretical importance at a level that is still relevant perhaps to the everyday consciousness of human beings who have to do stuff in the world. So my notion of humble theory, you know, I think also finally had to do with uh, what Jason Jackson, Jason Baird Jackson at Indiana calls um, 
the Americanist, he's talking about the sort of Boazian tradition of eth- ethnography of communication that I'm talking about. Um, Jackson calls this the Americanist tendency to theoretical modesty. And I think, honestly, modesty is appropriate uh, for me if I'm trying to talk about theory. And I think about the field in that um, because we are weakly institutionalized, uh, we're not in a position to form a grand theory if we wanted to. We really need to, I think, be having more integrated conversations among ourselves to come to not consensus about, um, not to consensus about theory itself, but really um, the terms of debate, um, simply to move towards a more unified vocabulary within which I think we can have more, we can refine, um, we can refine our our disputes. Um, So, Humility seems to me an appropriate, an appropriate posture, I think. And so I took it from Charlotte's Web. Um, you may remember that um, Charlotte's first big slogan for Wilbur the pig was humble. She looked it up in the, she had a bit of a scrap of a dictionary, and humble means not proud and near the ground. And that, I think, is an appropriate stance for those of us who are trying to continue to engage with vernacular theory, um, with vernacular theorizing, which is a great, daunting, um, you know, wonderful but intricate subject. I'm glad you brought up that sort of that term vernacular theorizing. Um, I guess the remainder of uh, part one, the sort of the work of folklore studies, um, sort of a lot of them are probably among your most well-known uh, articles group, as you already mentioned, the social base of folklore, the was it three strands of tradition, and um, aesthetic is the opposite of anesthetic, which is personally one of my favorite titles out there. Um, and then, um, so so because they're they're so well read, maybe maybe we can skip to part two, um, entitled histories and economies of tradition. Uh, this section really fascinated me personally. Um, because you sort of, it seems to me that you sort of examining the formulation of the folk and of tradition at different historical moments in the formation of our what has what is at the moment our modern capitalist order, if you will. Um, and in the introduction, you describe this as coming out of an interest of moving sort of uh, uh, an interest in provincial intellectuals and. Um, in moving beyond perhaps facile narratives of domination resistance and towards viewing folklore as vernacular theorization. And I guess I was wondering if you could sort of um, expand upon how how these chapters, uh, examining topics ranging from voice to fairy tale to myth to festival, sort of coalesce into helping us understand these issues. Yeah, I am delighted you asked about this section because, of course, the first section is the essays that everybody has read, and these are the ones that nobody has read. So uh, I sort of put them there in the middle, I guess, halfway between hoping that no one would notice and hoping that everyone would notice. Um, But indeed, this 
is um, these reflect more of my particular interests, and they also reflect more of a European take on the field. So I think that um, in the U.S., we're really from the very formulation of the field um, in 1888 by William Wells Newell, we have been thinking about folklore as the vernacular layer of culture that everybody has got. We are all the folk. We all have uh, a level of um, a level of participation in informal, uh, informal forms, non-institutionalized culture that is created in social interaction that depends on social interaction for its reproduction. Um, and in the U.S., I think it's been there are good political reasons for which it's been necessary to say that we are all the folk. And it really indeed began as a kind of equalizing gesture um, in contrast to evolutionary anthropology that was raising um, the evolved European male at the center of the world and the folk sort of along the way to that and then the um, um, and then the colonized and enslaved populations at a great uh, at a lower level. William Wells Newell really wanted to say everybody who ended up in you know who was already in that territory we now call the U.S. or who ended up here by the various means by which we ended up here, we all have. Um, cultural practices of a kind that can be studied with the tools of philology, the tools that grew into our ethnography of speaking. And all of these groups have history that has constrained their forms of expression. You can study uh, the narratives of Native Americans, the narratives of um, the narratives of freed slaves, the narratives of new immigrants, and the narratives of Boston Brahmins with the same message, with the same methods and through the same logic. So that was an important, um, an important foundation in the U.S. and one that's still with us. Um, but in Europe, uh, the framing has really been different and it's been expressed most concisely in a fantastic article that has never been translated out of French and Italian um, by an Italian um, ethnologist named Alberto Cirese, who wrote, af who wrote in quite early, let's see, in 1967 uh, or thereabouts, uh, wrote about folklore as the said that the proper scope of folklore studies was the study of cultural alterity and uneven and unevenness within the so-called superior societies. That is, uh, folklore was the study of the contradictory zones uh, within the modern, the, the sort of intimate alterity within the modern. And this is a conclusion that, of course, was independently reached by some American folklorists, such as Richard Bauman and Charles Briggs. Um, but in Europe, it's really been an awareness that's much deeper. And so the idea that uh, all kinds of difference within Western societies, whether this is regional difference, um, as in my interest in the provincial, whether it is social class difference, ethnic difference, gender, whether it has to do with um, um, 
with the relation to the colonies, whether it has to do with the relationship to children and education, whether it has to do with disability, all of these kinds of differentiations that um, make certain that make a certain kind of unmarked actor, the um, you know the bourgeois male of the dominant ethnicity who who has entree into the Habermasian coffee house. You know, this is what a citizen looks like and everybody else is in some fashion deviant. And that kind of deviation is really what Chirese marked out as our subject matter. And in that respect, I think the kind of standard history we give of the field that it's all about nationalism is much too reductive. Um, and it's blinded us, I think, to some things that are useful. And this is part of what in, you know, this kind of episodic way that you see in these different essays, I have tried to recover in my historical work, beginning with a book I really hope I will have time and headspace to write when I retire, on a book on festivals in 17th century southern France, uh, Occitanie, the zone of southern France that uh, spoke Occitan, um, a sort of separate language from French, um, but that had come this region that had come under French rule and that in the 17th century was coming strongly under centralization, the real um, consolidation of the French state as a centralizing power that was ruling the provinces first by force because these were areas that had uh, had civil war going on. They were heavily Protestant um, areas and they were, of course, also resisting centralization um, for the sake of the privileges of, you know, the local uh, the local aristocracies. Um, but these were rebellious regions that had been subdued first by force, then by taxation and then by the kind of cultural initiatives of the French state to spread the French language, to spread French culture, ultimately, uh, you know, later in French history, through universal education, through a kind of imposed common narrative. And it seems to me that we can really go, we should be going back to the 17th century rather than the 19th to think about the real beginnings of the field and Bauman and Briggs identified this in one way in Voices of Modernity. They identified the kind of Anglo-American side of this that has to do with primarily with ideologies of language uh, and the birth of a, a modern idea of language as transparent, um, as transparent and a sort of vehicle of information versus uh, the realm of uh, non-modernity, which is also the realm of poetry, language as expressive, language as sort of laden with meaning and tradition and symbolism. Um, that's, that's also a 17th century development that has to do with philosophical and scientific developments in, um, in England, religious uh, religious, Protestant, and then philosophic and scientific developments in places like England and then in the US and Germany and elsewhere. But I think there's also a continental European history, and that's one that's more of interest to me as somebody who does the Romance languages, and more of interest to me as somebody who does um, uh, who does festival 
already if you go to 16th century Italy, you already have city-states um, in Italy that are differentiating themselves by adapting a common festival language to create sort of locally distinctive signifiers. And this kind of festival vocabulary in 17th century France and in a different, in 17th century Southern France, I think also in the Low Countries, also in Catalonia, with slightly different political logics, um, this festival vocabulary becomes a mode of political self-assertion for these people in provincial situations, these people in places like um, Toulouse and Montpellier and uh, other cities in Languedoc that are um, that are no longer in control of their own political lives, that are you know, that have now become defined as backward places in relation to Paris that have now, that are now very clearly um, humbled places, uh, you know, places that have been conquered and that now have to live under the rule of the French state. And the elites, and interestingly here, it's the elites. It's not, um, uh, I'm not talking here about um, about lower class people. I'm talking about elites in these areas who begin to formulate a language of local identity that we're going to associate with folklore. Um, so I have these incredible festivals in early 17th century Languedoc um, that, like the Patum, have these stressing animals. Um, in, in Catalonia, which was rebelling with at least, well, which was having a civil war with the Spanish, uh, with the Spanish state in the 17th century, they had these kicking mules. Um, a mule is an animal you never domesticate very well. It's always violent. It's always sort of uppity. Um, you always have to sort of beat it into submission. It's, it's, a, it's an animal that's sort of always in conflict, and it's a great symbol throughout history of the working class in America and African-American culture also, which is another article that hasn't gotten anthologized yet. But uh, getting back to the domestic animals, um, where Catalonia had this rebellious mule, I was startled to discover that Spain, sorry, that southern France had ponies and camels and horses, um, equines also, that um, acted out in the festival, were aggressive during the festival, but were sort of successfully domesticated at the end. And I discovered that there was a kind of consistent pattern of festival imagery. We are a domestic animal that is going to be tamed and ridden by you, but that still knows how to bite. There's still a kind of threat that the domesticated animal might go feral, might go wild. Um, so that's one kind of imagery of the folk and imagery of um, peripheral regions. They have to be domesticated, tamed, incorporated into the household by force and, you know, also by affection, but mostly by force. Then there's another kind of symbolism, which is of the ruin, the, you know, Southern France is a place that had Roman, great Roman civilization, great Roman cities, uh, long, you know, when Paris was nothing. 
um, and these are now ruins. And so there are all of these talking statues with, um, you know, their heads knocked off, statues of old Roman emperors that uh, get for these festivals, uh, not only with new talking heads, but actually with... um, other members of their body that had been knocked off and that sort of come back to life and rise up in these festivals. And the talking statues, um, you know, kind of say, yeah, all right, we're defeated now, but we're not dead yet. And then um, figures of the ragged foreigner, figures of the Arab, uh, both in Catalonia and in southern France, these figures of the Moor or the Turk. And these were kind of founding figures in this part of the world. They also had an important civilizing role in the local landscape. And they were also passing through trading with the Mediterranean cities and also uh, passing through southern France in the 17th century when the Muslims were expelled from Spain. And in these festivals, these places are talking about themselves as these sort of ragged foreigners who also are um, suffering in the present, but who still have a kind of liveliness, a creativity, and a power of threat to them. Things are happening to the language in the festivals at the same time, The local language is moving from something in which you can do dignity, um, something in which you can make serious claims. That register, the dignified register of the language is going away, but the carnivalesque register of the language, the scatological, the silly, um, the, uh, the sexual is really asserting itself quite powerfully. I'm sorry, you see why I want to write this book and why I, um, Uh, why I am uh, going on about the 17th century. But, you know, that was really important for me to to remember that as a whole, um, a lot of what gets called folklore around Europe has to do with these local political assertions, whether that is um, at the level of the region, you know, the region that's struggling for autonomy, as in Catalonia, whether it's at the level of the um, the town that is, you know, clamoring for investment and political attention, which is the case in, um, uh, in Languedoc in the 17th century, but it's also the case in all of the places that are looking for intangible cultural heritage investment right now, uh, or whether you're talking about at the level of social class. And Certainly, the elites in Provence and Languedoc are are capturing plebeian forms. Those rebellious animals seem to have a much deeper medieval history. Um, There are the amazing 14th century stories of young men taking a wild horse with fire in its mouth into a church and setting the church on fire. So there are, I think, deeper vocabularies of rebellion in what's happening in the 17th century. And those that sort of um, uh, low um, sort of subaltern self-assertion comes back, of course, uh, much more vigorously in the 19th century, where um, 
workers who had been displaced from their traditional commons and their traditional privileges begin to really intensify their performances of custom, um, again, is a way of saying we're here, we are self-aware. Um, and even if you recognize us as low, even if you recognize us as disorderly, even if you recognize us as not modern, by God, you still better recognize us. So there's, I think, a whole history of folklore and industrial class conflict. Um, that's one of the important motors of the nationalism, because one of the things that nationalism is about is to construct a unity within the society that's going to bring the industrial working classes into alignment with elites, that's going to give them a sense of a common identity rather than a differential one. So um, paternalist practices in factories is something I learned about a lot in Catalonia. And just as it was important there, it was important in the U.S., Henry Ford and a whole lot of other a company town, well, a whole lot of other industrialists created the company town as a way of incorporating their workers into a framework that would get them away from labor unions and those kinds of contestatory self-assertion that also relied on folklore. You know, think about the role of, of gospel songs and folk song in the union movements in the U.S., um, but industrialists uh, like Henry Ford were putting forward visions of cultural authenticity and were creating these kinds of pseudo-traditional communities uh, that had that imagined the workers as folk, that imagined the workers as dancing their acquiescence, you could say, singing for the master in the phrase of my old uh, uh, my old um, advisor, Roger Abrams, who wrote about this as part of plantation culture. That kind of culture began on the plantation, the folklorization of the subaltern, and it moved into the industrial world. And the alliance with nationalism, which kind of scaled this up to the level of uh, the modern state, is an important one. So a lot of this history that I've done um, is really trying to complicate our sense of the, the range of political disputes that were going on through these assertions of the non-within modernity, these assertions of traditional vocabulary as an idiom, as an idiom of political dispute. Um, and the way that, of course, the later chapters, the sort of post-nationalist chapters, um, begin to deal with the ways that those formulas of the folk, those formulas of tradition, once they're created, um, can then get revised um, into both hegemonic projects like um, uh, like you know, neoliberal and corporate culture, and also into new kinds of um, projects of political coexistence, as I think has happened with uh, with Brazilian traditional culture in in Germany. Uh, great stuff. Let's let's turn to those sort of those post nationalist ones. I, I really do like um, 
Right. What I, what I understand you meaning by that, at least, um, the, I, I'm certainly going to have to go back and reread part two, um, based on our, our conversation just now, because there's a lot that I, that it, that it brought up for me. Um, but I was wondering if we could we could then uh, we could now switch gears to part three, where you talk about slogan concepts and cultural regimes. Um, let's start out with this. What is a slogan concept? So there are other words for this, and perhaps um, I'm not sure yet whether this one is completely distinctive. Um, but we're all, most of us are familiar in the academy with Raymond Williams' great conception of the key word, words like culture or modernity, that come to mean way too much, you know, that get, uh, they become terms, according to Williams, they become terms of sort of central contestation at key moments of social change. So Raymond Williams really got interested in this by thinking about what does culture mean and why is everybody talking about it all of a sudden in the in Pope England, and he ended up going back to um, you know late nineteen again to the nineteenth century and looking at these arguments about culture as you know the best that has been thought and said uh, in Matthew Arnold's terms versus the early anthropological conception of culture as sort of all of the forms and created ways of life that humans have produced. Um, anyway, these are terms that become bearers of social value, and they escape academic definition because they're out there in the world circulating in ways that we can do nothing about. It's often been an embarrassment to folklorists that our terms – folklore, tradition, and so forth, uh, circulate in these ways that are really more powerful than, um, than our power to control them. The Germans call this Rücklauf, which means a backflow or the sort of undertow of a wave. So the meanings of the folk uh, out in the world are so dangerous and so powerful that many of us, of course, have contemplated jettisoning that term altogether simply because its dangerous uses are more powerful than our power to, to rein them in. But we have that notion of keyword, which, you know, for terms that are really central and unmasterable, like the modern, then the kind of the other end of this continuum, I would say, is the buzzword. Um, and, you know, so we think about this in the way that certain languages, certain terms come into corporate, um, you know, come into management discourse or come into institutional discourse. And suddenly everybody is talking about responsibility or everybody is talking about, um, 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 you see, I try to repress the memory of all of these things. Uh, but, you know, so suddenly everybody's talking about agile management or something. Agile, I'm sorry, I'm thinking of my husband's world of IT. You know, suddenly everybody's talking about agile programming. We all have to be agile. Um, so a slogan concept I see is sort of halfway between the keyword and the buzzword. It might start in a buzzword, it might live long enough to become a keyword, but a slogan concept, I think, is um, 
a a relatively openly defined um, multivocal term that puts itself forward in the realm of policy um, as a source of solutions to a problem. And so I think if we think about terms like diversity, sustainability, um, intangible cultural heritage, which is, of course, what got me into all of this, and resilience, which I think is our key, um, our, our key slogan concept of the moment, um, these are terms that are helping us to address problems that we perceive. So in the case of intangible cultural heritage, um, we are worried about cultural appropriation, what happens when um, the forms, um, the generative cultural forms that are created in a particular social location end up getting co-opted by somebody in a better position who is able to commercialize them and turn them into intellectual property and really get all the profit without having done any of the work. So we've had that as a kind of particular concern of the field, what happens to traditional forms when somebody takes them off and converts them to intellectual property. And of course, we've had the broader problem. This is why intangible cultural heritage got as far as UNESCO and other intergovernmental policy uh, forums. Um, the problem of uneven development, how do we deal with this enduring asymmetry between economic asymmetry um, between those, um, the former, well, between the, the great powers, um, between the great powers, the formal, the former imperial states, um, and the so-called undeveloped part of the world that continues to struggle economically and that continues to um, serve as a source of either uh, raw material for industry or raw labor for uh, technological and, and service work, etc. These places that continue um, to be seen as sort of secondary and as resources for the rich world. So that large problem of uneven development um, what do they have? What do they have that could become their own basis, their own foundation for um, for economic development that would not be simply attaching themselves, but that would be um, sort of their own universe of innovation? And I think intangible cultural heritage put itself forward as a solution to that problem, In to my mind, a very complex a very compromised solution for that problem, uh, as is also cultural property, the other slogan concept about which uh, I and my colleagues Regina Bendix and Kilian Bitzer have written. Um, so those kinds of terms have come forward. And resilience, um, you know, I like many of these terms, right? Sustainability, I think, is terrific. Uh, I worry about the way, in, although, you know, the, the devil is always in the implementation. But I began to notice a few years ago um, that sustainability was beginning to give way to the term of resilience uh, or to be paired with the term of resilience. 
Um, and also at the same time, I noticed it was the summer of, I think it was 2013. I've got to go look at my note here. Um, suddenly, people I saw talking about climate change were suddenly talking not about prevention, but were talking about adaptation. And in that same summer, when I started noticing this, I also found that every blockbuster movie I went to at my local theater was about the end of the world. They were all about the apocalypse. And it suddenly, I suddenly thought, oh my God, there's, there's been a tipping point. We've given up. And then suddenly resilience was everywhere. And so I started looking at resilience and Again, while I would not dispute that, by God, we've all got to be resilient, given that many things are coming at us from all angles, uh, both at the personal level of being resilient through uh, whatever little crises life throws at you, and also at the uh, global level of, um, of economic resilience and, um, and environmental resilience, um, Resilience does t seem to take for granted that stuff is going to happen. That is, you know, Donald Rumsfeld put it, stuff happens. Um, you know, I was, I think, quite struck by finding this uh, poster from an activist group in New Orleans um, where there has been a great deal of uh, policy invention in the post-Katrina world aimed at creating personal and institutional resilience. Um, I found a uh, poster on the street saying, stop calling me resilient, because every time you say, oh, they're resilient, that means you can do something else to me. I am not resilient. And it has always seemed to me that when you put these slogans forward, and this happened with um, cultural property in a research group, a wonderful research group that I was part of in Göttingen, the Göttingen Interdisciplinary Research Group in Cultural Property. Um, when we talk about cultural property, we tend to fail to look at the sources of the problems that create the need to figure out what cultural property might look like, because we are so intrigued by this concept, because it's an oxymoron. The whole idea of property, you know, came up in the context of individualism and ideas of individual invention. Property law as we have it uh, cannot currently be applied to collectivities. It cannot currently take account of revision and recreation and the tradition process, everything that shapes uh, the kinds of practices that we would like to protect. So we all got so worried about saying cultural property is, imp is impossible or, well, how could we fix it so that it would be possible? Would it be, you know, and how would that work? And would it be ethical? And would it solve the problem or not? And we got so concerned with first critiquing and then playing with and ultimately just naturalizing the term as something that's out there in the world that we stopped thinking really about why do we even need this? And, you know, are there global problems, as indeed there are, uh, which we discover not only 
from the context of vernacular tradition, but also from the context of high tech, um, our intellectual property regime is at this point completely dysfunctional. It's in crisis. And by seeking this kind of band-aid of cultural property, we are not doing that overall revamping. We are not certainly doing the still larger revamping of uh, global capitalism, which of course is a little bit tricky, challenging, large. Um, you know, we're not looking at the causes. We are not looking at potential ways of reanalyzing the problem such that even if we're talking about the local community, we might find solutions that would not have to do with creating a new special case of intellectual property. So I think slogan concepts are very seductive. They sound good. Why would you say no to a property, right? They sound like they might you know, they get you on board because they sound promising and really nobody else is offering you anything. So they they win adherence. Um, they win adherence in among academics and in the policy world because they're sort of where the action is and where the funding is. Um, they, you know, they promise us something we can march behind towards a solution. But I think they then create this large blind spot blind spot on the other side that um that keeps us from looking for multiple definitions of the problem so i think i think they're very characteristic of uh our present era in that they do provide this um this banner that we can get around in times of very little consensus about anything. Um, they do provide global or global seeming slogans that seem to offer particular applications. They, you know, they offer us some kind of hope that does not involve thoroughgoing revision of these, you know, inertial institutions among which we live. So I think they're very seductive in a global situation. Um, and therefore, and, and they are slogans that our own field, of course, is being enticed to address. And we are uh, jumping onto these bandwagon, these bandwagons along with everyone else. Um, but I see their dangers. And so I felt compelled to, to write about them. It seems it seems incredibly timely to sort of bring us to that. I think because because these um, these issues do, as you point out, seem to be more and more ubiquitous. Whether it's disruption or heritage or, as you say, resilience. Um, so um, now I know I note that you you end without providing a solution, but sometimes the critique is enough. Um, well. I think we've taken up a lot of your time today. Thank you so much for uh, for talking with us uh, through all these thoughts. Um, uh, before we let you go, though, I was wondering if you could tell us what you're working on now or what you'll be working on next. Is it going to be the the 17th century culture book, or is that is that still further down the road? I haven't got the headspace to think carefully about the 17th century right now, just because I'm busy living in the 21st. Um, 
But I have, in fact, been worried about doing a lot of critique and offering no solutions. And I'm not sure that my current project is quite addressing that problem. But I have been, in a sense, going back now to my own tradition, uh, instead of studying somewhere else. Um, I have been always interested in turning folklore's methods on elite Western practices, on dominant Western practices. And right now, um, I'm working slowly on a book that kind of goes back into my own cultural and political formation. I'm writing a book about exemplarity, and none of us really know what that means. But the idea of leading by example, the idea of setting examples, and what is, I think, an idea very deep, but very not fully theorized in liberal democracy, that we will achieve social progress by setting and following examples so that initiatives will still come from individuals and local actors rather than being driven by centralization. But those individual and local initiatives will be emulated, be revised, be reformed, be improved, and they will ultimately lead to sort of phase shifts where there will be a positive transformation. And we all have certain icons of this. You know, Rosa Parks uh, refuses to get off the bus and everybody imitates that and global attention is brought to it because it's such a striking, um, you know, courageous impressive gesture that seems to summarize a whole set of agitations that are happening elsewhere. Um, And so I began by getting interested in that kind of power of the gesture. And what I'm moving now towards now, and the book is called Exemplary Failures, is really the way that um, exemplarity constitutes a tradition of political performance one that really goes back to the Roman Empire, the kind of setting of an impressive example that causes other people, um, that inspires a kind of competitive emulation. And I'm writing through a long history that starts in the 18th century and picks out all of my favorite stories, of course, um, about exemplarity as a powerful tradition of political performance in Western societies that is so powerful indeed that it furnishes a kind of ideology of progress. But then I go into the way that um, that tradition of performance um, lost control of itself, really, with a change in the performance context. When you go from the small scale of person-to-person encounter, the scale of folklore, really, the scale where actors are continually co-present to one another, and you go to the context of the modern state and then the global universe, where um, where performances are have to be mediated, um, have to be um, you know communicated um, from a site of visibility to the rest of the world. Um, the way that those performances sort of lose their moorings in that sense of person-to-person social responsibility. And instead, we have this kind of uncontrolled mimesis 
where the person who is screaming loudest for attention gets most of it, and the person who does the most outrageous thing inspires most emulation. And whether that speaks or not to our current political moment, I'll leave it to you to judge. But (laughs) that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. Uh, It sounds fantastic, and it sounds like something that will be very worth our attention uh, in this in this age of uh, aggregation. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Um, <clears throat> well, I think, I think we've taken up plenty of your time. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Thank you. Thanks for listening. All right. Take care. <laughs>